Week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. When we read a text in translation, we imagine, we hear what the author wrote because we believe that meaning can be taken separately from the words on the page. But if you can conceive of meaning, it needs must be part and parcel with a series of words. If not the words of the original text, then the alternative words of a translation, or worse, the self-referential words in your head. There is no meaning without words, and each set of words represents a different meaning. Three words appear in chapter 1 of Luke. Pragma, Logos, and Rima. All interconnected, all critical to Luke's thesis, all washed away in translation. If you have never heard these three words as they appear in Luke, then you have never heard Luke. And that's the point. Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1, verses 36 to 38. You're listening to the Bible as literature. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 438 of the Bible as Literature podcast. Last night in Bible study, I was reviewing Luke chapter 1 with the class and questioning this translation at the beginning of chapter 1. Twice in the New American Standard Bible, and I'll defer to Rich on what the King James says. I mean, who cares? The King James isn't the Bible, and neither is the New American Standard Translation. It's just an English text. But in any case, in verse 1, this word things appears, and it appears again in verse 4. If you're just reading this English book, and you're not reading the Bible alongside the English book— whichever version in English you're reading, you would assume Luke is talking about things in chapter 1. And then you could say, well, these things could be ideas, these things could be his theology, these things could be whatever they are. But in verse 1, what these scholars translate as things is the word pragma. In verse 4, the word they translate as things, and I remember you talking about this at length, Richard, the word that they translate as things is logos. So someone hearing the text in English would hear the first time things and not know that it's a different word than the term that is translated as things in verse 4, which is logos. So you have two different words used by the author that are whitewashed in translation. 
The first term in verse 1 is pragma. The second word is logos. Now, this is at the outset of the book, and it's something that is being emphasized by the author. Now, it's impossible to say at this point, we don't have enough data, ultimately, what Luke is doing, but there are some clues from the context of the entire narrative. We know that there are empty words, and there are words that carry weight. And we know that the scriptural word is the word that carries weight. We know that God's words are pregnant, the words of Elohim. We know that God's words demand action. That there is a commandment and there is an action, and we have no access, no right, to talk about the outcome of the action. There's only the commandment and the action, the deed, which is the matter at hand. The outcome is the kingdom, which is always ahead of us. This is a basic mechanism in Scripture. So, right away in verse 1, Luke is talking about the pragma, the account of these deeds, the matter at hand, the action, the things. And in verse 4, he's talking about the words that you're going to be taught. Words and deeds. It's important to see how this plays out. I wanted to come back and talk about this, however, because when we start dealing with this issue of impregnation and conception in Luke and these two women that we've been dealing with, Rich, and we see that human words, the human words of Zacharias, could not make a baby, could not produce life, because they're empty, they fall to the ground. They are hebel, they are vanos. They have no substance. They don't produce a deed. There is no matter at hand. <laughs> Whereas God's words, God's speech, are very much linked to a deed, an action, which in the text produces an outcome, which is the creation of life. It's very powerful. So I just wanted to take this opportunity to demonstrate to everyone how important it is to hear the text carefully as you go through verse by verse. We're required to be sensitive to these differences. Whether we know Greek or not, we have to be sensitive to those, which means everyone does have to learn Greek, unfortunately. <laughs> or fortunately, in my case, anyone who has the opportunity, it's a necessary undertaking for understanding Scripture because Luke is making a distinction between the pragmata and the logi. He's trying to explain something. I mean, this is the thesis of his book. It involves two different words. We can't assume that they're the same thing. Also, the distinction that you make, Father, between when the Lord speaks, he acts. There is no space between word and action. With human beings, there is. And this is a big distinction between the human being in Scripture and God in Scripture, is that God in Scripture, his word is his action. It is his deed. For human beings, there's a difference. Like you and I used to always repeat back in the day, Father, in Ecclesiastes, eternity is in man's heart, but he cannot grasp it. In your heart means in your head, means I can understand eternity, but I can't understand eternity. 
okay? I can think of a word that I can't do. I can think of vain words. I can speak vain words. Vain meaning empty. They don't have any substance to them. But for God, there is no distinction. If he conceives it, then he does it. It's the same thing. That's why bringing up this conception, and maybe this is an English pun that we're using, between the conception with Elizabeth and Mary and the conception of the word, human beings think of a word and nothing happens. The Lord speaks a word and it happens. And this is where Zechariah was having a problem. This is where Mary was having a problem because Gabriel brought a word and then the people say, well, how is that supposed to be? And it's like, it's God. (laughs) He said it, then it's the case. There's no question. If the Lord speaks, there is substance necessarily. When human beings speak, maybe there's substance. More often there's not. But to have a better chance of the human speech having substance, that speech is made up of the words that were given by God. This is the advantage of taking our time with the text. Notice as the podcast has matured over the years, we've done fewer and fewer verses per episode. This allows us to pay more and more attention to the actual text. We are still in chapter 1, We are only now in verse 36. So to go back to the beginning of chapter 1 and look at the terminology and examine its bearing on verse 36 is not a stretch. It wouldn't be a stretch if we were in chapter 10. Less so now that we're still in chapter 1. It does not take that much effort to be a scriptural person. I'm going through this right now with my parish. Everyone keeps asking me, how, Father Mark? And the question is profoundly sinful. It is the deepest, darkest sin of the human being to ask, how can we be scriptural? Because what you are saying is, I don't want to wake up every morning and spend 15 minutes reading four or five verses of Scripture every day. If you don't want to do that, there is nothing that can be done for you or offered to you. There is no hope for you. Go do something else. But take the time to sit down and hear three, four, five verses a day. My goodness. You could hear a chapter a day on Bible.is, and it would take the same amount of time it takes for you to listen to the stats on your stock market on National Public Radio. Come on. There is nothing else to do but hear Scripture and let it form you in its womb. That is the path. That is the narrow way. That is the gate that leads to life. You have to do the work. That is how 
I'm going to start saying it on every single podcast. It's going to become my tagline, Rich, my personal tagline. You want to know how? Read one chapter a day. If you can't read one chapter a day, read half a chapter. If you can't read half a chapter, read four verses. If you can't read four verses, read one verse. If you can't read one verse, learn one word in Greek or Hebrew every day. If you can't do that... Stop lying to yourself and do something else. And behold, even your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age, and she who was called barren is now in her sixth month. So remember, Mary's initial reaction was the same as Sarah's reaction, the same as Abraham's reaction, the same as Zacharias' reaction, the same as anybody who's honest with themselves. How am I going to have a baby without sperm? Did you not take biology? Or, in the case of Elizabeth, We're old! (laughs) And God, of course, laughs at us. If you haven't figured out that Scripture is satirical and God has a fabulous sense of humor, not a sense of humor the way that you want him to have one, meaning that he tells jokes and he's friendly and affable. No, 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 no. God is laughing at you, and you have to learn to laugh at yourself. If you can laugh at yourself, you can accept God laughing at you, then you can understand Luke chapter 1, because God is laughing at us. He's making fun of us. And Rich, you mentioned last week, that there might be something different in Mary's reaction, and I think we're going to learn very quickly how things shift. There is this different reaction. First of all, Zechariah is immediately shut up as soon as he wonders what's possible and what isn't possible, whereas Mary is allowed to continue. And maybe the reason why is because he's not the subject at hand. Elizabeth is. Here, Mary is actually the subject at hand. If she doesn't speak, she's going to be in big trouble because all of a sudden she's pregnant and can't defend herself. So, I don't know. Maybe I'm reading too much into it, but she is still allowed to speak. She is the one who's going to be pregnant. She's going to be the one to give birth. She's going to be the one that shows that this is coming to pass. I also find it significant that Elizabeth and her pregnancy in some ways is just used as proof or as evidence for Mary. Yes, there's going to be John the Baptist down the line and things like that, but it's almost as if God said, you know what? I know nobody believes me. So I'm just going to tell Zechariah, and then I'm going to get him out of the picture. Then I'm going to make Elizabeth pregnant. And then we can say, Mary, because I know Mary's going to question it. Here's your elderly cousin who's six months pregnant. So let's not discuss this anymore. This is all the evidence you're going to need. And then maybe that will convince her. It's almost as if this is specifically to convince Mary so that she doesn't put up some kind of argument or something like that. Now, we never hear anything about Elizabeth. She just wakes up one day and she's pregnant, as far as we know. We know nothing about that backstory. But Mary, we do know the story. And Mary says, how can this be? 
Let me show you exhibit A, your elderly cousin. She's pregnant. Any more questions? For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, the bond slave of the Lord, may it be done to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. I want to just make a couple of critical points here. Number one, this translation, bond slave, is offensive, as is the translation handmaiden in other texts. Why is it offensive? Because we have to stop putting a coat of white paint on everything that is difficult for our Western sensibilities. For heaven's sake. The word is slave. And it's an important word because Mary is distinguished here in the text because her reaction is to submit to the will of Elohim. That is her value functionally. I don't know what else to say. Because, as you said, Richard, there is no distinction between the word and the deed for God when he speaks. The only hope for the community, which Mary represents and Elizabeth represents, incidentally, the only hope for the communities they represent, in this case Mary, is that she allow the action of God with which his word is pregnant to supersede her will. And that can only happen if she submits as a slave, which is how, in a Roman context, we function as sheep in the Lord's flock. And when we try to soften it by saying bond slave or handmaid, whatever we do to try to change the language is us trying to get out from under the black and white binary imposition of the master-slave paradigm of shepherd and flock. There's no way around it. And it has nothing to do with human social dynamics. That's not what we're talking about. We are talking about allowing God's word which is pregnant with his action to rescue us from our own folly. And that is Mary's value here in the text because she submits, be it done unto me according to your word. And the other point I wanted to make, Rich, is that here the term that is translated word is not logos, it is rima. And we always have to ask, why the different terms? What is going on here in the text? Yeah, I keyed in on this as well, because it's also in the previous verse in 37, which is very awkward in English when you try to translate the Greek. But it says that it is not impossible to God any rima, which is the same that Mary says, may it happen to me according to your rima. So this rima sounds more like utterance. Again, it's going to take a lot of research, Father, to really kind of tease these words apart. We have logos, we have pragma, and we have rima. But let it happen to me, which is, I think, just as important as Thuli, because not only is she saying she's a slave, but she's saying, whatever you say, whatever you're uttering, may it happen, which is saying, I'm getting out of the way. (laughs) That it's not 
my will, that it has to be according to your will, because any utterance is possible to God. And what does that mean? God not only doesn't, he cannot speak vain talk. Every word, as you said before, Father, is pregnant. There is no word that does not produce fruit. There is no word that does not produce action. Mary can try to get in the way, but she can't get in the way because it's the rima to theu. It's God's word. And Zechariah can try to get in the way, but guess what? His rima is stopped. He can't speak. There are no more utterances coming out of his face. So that means it's only the word, the rima of the Lord. And this rima is different than what the narrator is speaking to his interlocutor at the beginning of the chapter, because that's pragma and logos. So we want to keep straight these words, these utterances, these things, but the only way to do so is to keep track of it in the Greek, because you can't translate them literally and have a coherent English text. It would be a a silly English-sounding text. There is no English text that can accurately represent this. So every translation you use is doing its best shot. But you have to go back to the original words. And even if you don't know Greek, you can use a Strong's Concordance. And you can see it actually will show you how each word ties to a Greek word. And you can see from your Strong's Concordance that these are three different words, pragma, logos, and rima, even though it's thing, 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 or word, word, word in English. Listen to the text, read the text, but study the text too. One chapter at a time, half a chapter at a time, one verse at a time, half a verse at a time. It's always going to bear fruit. There's always more to be learned from this scripture. There's always more to be learned in hearing the word of the Lord. And I'm just going to use English. We can fill it in later with whichever Greek word we want. But hearing these words that come from the Lord in scripture, we have to hear these words as pregnant with action. If they come into our head, and they don't produce action, we're the ones in the way. We have to become the dulos, the slave. We have to be ready to submit to these words so that it might be done to me, according to the rima to theu. We have to, as we said in a previous episode, allow God to do his work. What Mary is doing here, honestly, by not doing anything, by just submitting, is very brave. I don't think our listeners understand how brave it is. I'll say this. Someone from a war-torn country, someone who has experienced trauma at the hands of abuse, cruelty, violence, people in those situations who discover within themselves the humanity not to judge their neighbor, who discover within themselves the true face of the evil that oppresses them, they have inside themselves the bravery of this character in the story, and they can allow God to do his work because they realize their only hope is to submit. That's the value of Mary's function in the story. Thanks very much, Dr. Benton. Thank you, Father. 
You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.